If you have a Bible, now would be a really good time to open it or get where you can see one to 1 Samuel 31. And today we finish the book of 1 Samuel, which means we're about halfway through with the life of David. Uh, this continues because really the book of Samuel includes both first and second. And so today the writer and narrator is going to uh, provide us with information. He almost seems like he drags his feet to get to this point. He doesn't really want to say what he's going to say in chapter 31 because he's going to talk about the end of Saul as king of Israel. And so as we look at this, uh, I want you to pay careful attention as to how the writer of the book of 1 Samuel presents this information because there's much here uh, that can be helpful for all of us. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers uh, found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the, their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shen. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shen, and they came to Jabesh and burned them. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you will give us light. Uh, on this text, one which is sad in so many ways, one which breaks our heart when we think deeply about it, and yet on the other hand, once one that uh, records and fulfills your word, 
what you had said previously. So, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit who inspired this text would open our eyes to see and behold truth, truth that will change us if we believe it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's almost as if there's an announcer coming over the television telling us, and now we join the battle of Gilboa in progress. Because at the same time in the last chapter, David was plundering uh, the Amalekites at Aphek. Here, Saul is meeting his ultimate demise. Um, the initial verb tells us that uh, they were going on simultaneously. And we readers have sort of arrived a bit late at this battle, and the narrator has deliberately made us late. I sense, again, as I said earlier, he's in no hurry uh, for us to arrive at Gilboa. He could have nicely and chronologically related the Battle of Gilboa immediately after chapter 28. Instead, the writer switched us back to David and to something that had happened earlier. He makes us spend two chapters with David and his men before he gets back to Gilboa, late as it were, and it's such a sad, tragic, and dark story that the writer loathes almost to tell it. He drags his literary feet, as some would say. But it cannot be postponed forever. It must be told. And so he does it. Actually, there's not a whole lot to be told here. It's pretty uh, succinct and pretty much a summary. It can all be said in one line. The men of Israel fled from the Philistines and... Uh, fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And so there's sort of a summary, and then some of the details come out. Hebrew narrative uh, it frequently gives us a terse summary at the beginning of a story, and then fleshes the story out with some details. The details will follow. Uh, like a bad dream, we must reach the end of it, and readers undergo no illusions. However, the writer has given a blunt and bloody synopsis at the start. David had enjoyed double deliverance at Aphek and Ziklag, but there's no deliverance here for Saul and his sons. At Gilboa, the enemies of Yahweh win the day. They win this battle. And the witness of chapter or story of chapter 31 centers on the four things that I've listed as the four points of this narrative, tragedy, truth, shame, and gratitude. And I will try to summarize the teaching of what's going on in chapter 11 by expanding on and speaking to these themes. And so point number one is the theme that you see in your bulletin, which is tragedy. And in reality, the tragedy here in the first two verses is Jonathan's obituary. Um, this chapter is often called a double, doubly tra uh, tragic narrative. Tragic, of course, in reference to Saul and his end. But I propose the tragedy we should most be moved by in one way is what happened in verse 2. Now the Philistines dogged the tracks of Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Actually, Jonathan is the first reported casualty 
on Mount Gilboa. And I'm not going to linger too long on this other than to say that uh, Jonathan's death is a striking intro to the tragedy that's going on here. David will talk more about that in 2 Samuel chapter 1, but what Jonathan had played such a central role in the life of David and in the previous narratives. Jonathan was a, a great encourager of David. He had every right to the throne as the uh, firstborn of Saul. Um, but when Jonathan's uh, death occurs, it certainly deserves something of notice. Um, here then is Jonathan's obituary. He remained a true friend of David and a faithful son of Saul at the same time, and that was hard to do if you know anything about the narrative. He surrendered his kingship to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. In this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place Yahweh had assigned to him at the side of his father. And as I've noted before, maybe that is not tragic at all. What is tragic about the remaining uh, faithfully in the calling of God that God has assigned to us. Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could never lose? And so as a result of that, I think this text pushing Jonathan up to the forefront recognizes something of his place in the history of redemption. Here was a man who had every opportunity in the world to be king of Israel and yet denied himself and still remained faithful to his father who was anything but worthy of that kind of trust. Now, the second thing I want you to see, and we're going to get through this pretty fast and you're going to think the sermon's over, but it's not, okay? So hang on. The second is truth. The verbs tell a tale of brutal disaster. The word flee is used in three times, fall or fallen four times, strike down, writhe or wounded, pierce through twice, die four times, strip twice, cut off, nail. In the thick of it all, Saul pleads with his armor bearer to finish him off. Saul wills to die the way Abimelech died earlier, Israel's unanointed king in the book of Judges, by the sword of an obliging armor bearer. But Saul's armor bearer here would not comply with the request precisely because he knows Saul is Yahweh's anointed. Hence, Saul plunges himself upon his own sword. Four times the verb mute in Hebrew, to die, is used. Saul has died. His sons have died. His armor bearer died. His bodyguard died. Israel is wasted. They are licked. All this matters not only because it's sad, but because it is the fulfillment of Yahweh's word spoken through. You remember when the witch at Endor called Samuel up and he gave this prophecy regarding that in a few days Saul and his kingdom, he would be killed in battle and it would be done with the Philistines overcoming. And so God fulfilled his word and he fulfills his word every time he speaks his word. If there's one thing you can count on in life, is that the word of the Lord will be fulfilled. If he speaks it and we understand it accurately, we will know it will be fulfilled. That gives me great confidence and hope 
as a believer because if I just look at the world around me, it's very easily to become overwhelmed or depressed or discouraged or wondering where God is or becoming fearful or having a sense of panic or uh, being disturbed where I can't sleep. But if I look at the word of the Lord and what God has promised, it gives me confidence and stability and security that cannot be shaken and cannot be taken away. And so one of the great things, and I've, I've been emphasizing this throughout this text and throughout the book of Samuel, is learning to live upon the promises of God. Believing them, standing upon them, counting on them, relying upon them. Often when we're in a panic, we turn to every trick up our sleeve we have to do anything but trust God. And finally, through frustration and being exhausted and worn out, we'll finally trust God. But the way that we need to learn to live and the way that I'm trying to learn to live as I get older, two things to me stand out as I grow older. One of them is prayer. Now, theoretically, I've always talked a good game about prayer, but hadn't done a whole lot of praying. Not a great prayer warrior. I want to be a great prayer warrior, but I'm not. I'm growing in that. And the second thing I'm becoming more assured of the older I get is the promises of God's word. The, they will come to pass. And they are there to give us uh, the wonderful comfort and hope that we have in our sovereign God. Now, this is hardly a happy fulfillment of God's word, and yet it's not without its comfort. It's a dark time for the kingdom of God, but God's word shows that even this darkness is not outside of God's purpose. It falls within the boundaries of what he has previously announced. And uh, by the same token, it's far easier to stomach Pharaoh's big mouth when you know his hard heart already stands under the decree of God's word. In any case, God's word of judgment on Saul is true, and we can be equally assured that his word promised to David will come to pass. In darkness or light, what matters is having a God who speaks truth and is faithful to his word. I can remember my dad when I was a young boy. I think I had 10 yards in the neighborhood that I was responsible to mow. My younger brother was a helper to me. Sometimes he helped. Sometimes he played. Sometimes he hid from me while I mowed the yard. But my dad would come by every day and inspect the yard that I mowed. And I can remember, I hate to see his truck pulling up because he's going to find one place where we didn't clip it or one place where we didn't do this or where we left a gap in the yard or where we should have trimmed a bush. I mean, we were intense on our fur. My dad was intense about it. He said, son, I want to know that when I send you to cut somebody's yard, I can count on you. That's what he told me all the time. I can count on you. And then when I didn't do it, he said, you're no account at all. He would tell me that all the time. You're no account. But anyway, that was part of growing up, part of learning how uh, my father's word in a similar way would either bring blessing or judgment to me. 
and often judgment. Now, let's talk about the problem of shame. The next day, the Philistines swarm over Mount Gilboa, excuse me, collecting prizes from the Israelites' corpses. This is not uncommon in ancient warfare, ancient Near Eastern warfare. They're not doing anything that anybody else didn't usually do. And they discover their premier trophies and they mangle them to their liking, at least they do to Saul's body. They uh, decapitate him, cut his head off, strip off his armor, and then uh, the Philistines send Saul's head and armor all over their home territory, uh, and they keep the head or armor also in the north and send word through messengers to preach the good news in their idol temples. It's, it's like a reversal of a victory for Yahweh. Now it's a victory for Dagon and a victory for Ashtaroth in Philistine. And so just as heralds would go forth into the cities and herald forth the good news of victory, they did the same thing. The Philistines did the same thing. But what about the reputation of God? God's name was upon his people. God's name was invested. His covenant people were Israel. And God had invested um, his name and reputation in these people. I remember when Moses was wrestling with God in prayer and God told him that he wasn't going to go up with him uh, to the journey to the promised land. He said, I, I won't go with you. You take them yourself. I'm not going. And Moses said, no way. Unless you go up with, uh, with us, we are done. He said, I pray for your name's sake so that the Egyptians will not stand and mock your name because you weren't able to completely deliver your people. That's praying ground right there, folks. Taking God's name and saying to him, defend the honor of your name. But here shame had been brought upon the name of God by Saul and his armies a gigantic defeat. And in spite of the uncertainties of the text, the idols have won. They have carried uh, the day. The gory head belongs to Yahweh's anointed. Therefore, Yahweh has been defeated. Saul's armor is in the adversary's temple. Yahweh could not protect his king. No question how the media of that day would have constructed this. If Yahweh's king and people were trounced, so was their God. Never mind that the Philistine idols couldn't even salivate when the spoils of war were placed before them. Now again, the pagan evangelists were running all over Philistia chanting, Yahweh is a loser. The sadness of our text is due not merely to the fact that Israel is crushed. That is extremely sad. But there's a deeper sadness in that Yahweh is mocked. Every true Israelite mourns over that. Worse than Israel's defeat is Yahweh's disgrace. By the way, Christ has written your name on his hands. You belong to him. You are his purchased possession. You are his and let me ask you this about your life at this moment. Does your life bring honor and glory and acclaim to Jesus? Or does your life right now bring shame to him? Does your life now bring grief 
as it were to him. Because our name, we bear the name Christian of Christ. And are we living in shame or in honor? Do we, we all sin, we know we all sin, we all fail, but in the main tenor of your life, are you living for him? Is he the number one concern you have? Is his reputation of being who he is glorious to you? Individually, yes, first, but corporately as a church, yes. A passion for God's honor. There is a story of a striking passion uh, for God's honor in the life of Esther Edwards Burr. Esther was the daughter of Jonathan Edwards had been bereaved of her husband Aaron, the father of the infamous vice president. He was a bright and shining lamp of the spirit, president of Princeton College, and cut off at the age of 41. Esther's sorrow was mixed with anxiety and with holy worry as she wrote her parents, Oh, I'm afraid I shall conduct myself so as to bring dishonor on my God and the religion I profess. No, rather let me die this moment than to be left to bring dishonor to God's holy name. I am overcome. I must conclude with once more begging that as my dear parents remember themselves, they would not forget their greatly afflicted daughter, now a lonely widow, nor her fatherly children. What mattered to her most was the reputation, the name of God placed upon us. And that's what matters, whether it involves the church as a body or an individual believer, whether it's Mount Gilboa or New Jersey in this case, whether there are Philistines or Presbyterians, the honor of Yahweh himself must be at the top of all of our agendas. Do you have that kind of passion in you? Have you looked at the cross? Have you, have you found yourself at the foot of the cross looking at the Lord of glory and what he went through on your behalf, and how, whether or not you are living with an intentional, passionate concern for his name in your life. I pray the Holy Spirit would bring us under deep conviction when we begin to dishonor that name as his people. And thus, bring upon him. And, that, and that's true in this text, true in the ancient Near East. Uh, the final thing, though, that I see here is gratitude. I like this part of the story probably best of all because when Saul's ranks were cut to shreds, those on the other side of the valley, that is the people north of Mount Gilboa, across the valley of Jezreel, and those on the other side of the Jordan, I take that as meaning east of the Jordan River, abandoned their towns, and the Philistines occupied those towns. It's difficult to know how extensive their dominance was at this point. It seems they had at least cut off the Galilee tribes and those south of the plain of Esdralon. They controlled the fortress town of Bethshan, located several miles in the east of the battle scene, dominating the area west of the Jordan River. Four mutilated Israelite bodies now hang on the town walls. Well, verses 11 through 13 come as close as one can get to a tender note in this raw chapter. 
residents of Jabesh Gilead heard how the Philistines had abused Saul's corpse and some of their strong and valiant men uh, and daring men took an all-night trek to Bethshan, removed the rotting bodies from the walls, and vamoosed back to Jabesh Gilead. They had stamina, obviously, because for Jabesh Gilead was to the east of the Jordan River, about 10 miles southeast of Bethshan. Hence, a round trip of 22 miles occurred. They had courage, for there was a great deal of risk in such a bold stroke. They also had memories, and that explains it all. Jabesh Gilead had never forgotten Nahash the Ammonite was as skilled mutilator as any Philistine. But when he threatened Jabesh Gilead, Saul, in the power of the Spirit, had marched to their rescue, and at night, um, at that, Saul's reign began with his deliverance of Jabesh and ends with Jabesh's deliverance of Saul, as it were. The Spirit may have departed from Saul, and Yahweh may not answer him, but the time was when Saul was the savior of Jabesh. They remain grateful. Proper burial and fasting are in order. It was a debt of gratitude, and they paid it. But as we close, I want to move to the last thing I want to talk to you about because that's a pretty straightforward story. But I have noticed in the last several chapters, the narrator, the writer of the book of Samuel is going to great lengths to contrast these two men, Saul on the one hand and his demise, and David on the other hand and his rise. And I wanted to talk about that for a moment because there are things in it that you may have questions about. And on the somber occasion of Saul's demise, the reader is left to reflect on the career, as it were, of the first king of Israel, chosen by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Saul, in the beginning, had a lot going for him. He was impressive. Uh, and behold, he was noted for his great height shoulders and head taller than anyone. And Samuel said, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's not anyone like him among all the people. He was anointed by the Spirit, if you'll remember back in chapter 10, and he prophesied with the prophets. Uh, the Spirit had changed him into a better man. He had the backing of, of Israel's last judge and principal prophet. And he was chosen publicly uh, by Lot, his career certainly started with an impressive beginning, a successful rallying of Israel, as I just mentioned, at the aid of the besieged men of Jabesh and the defeat of the Ammonites. Subsequently, support for his reign was reaffirmed through acclamation. Saul was poised for success. Who could have predicted how far and how fast this man would fall. Explaining the tragic fall of Saul poses difficult theological questions for some readers. For example, since God was the one who had chosen Saul to be king, Saul initially, we know, didn't really seek the office, and Saul failed so miserably, did God set Saul up, as it were, for a fall? Did God fate Saul to fall? 
Was Saul something of a victim of God? After all, God sent Saul, we know, an evil spirit. And not only that, but uh, he stopped answering him and instead continually answered David and supported him. Some have suggested that Saul's main problem was his self-deprecation and his concern for his status with the people. Saul was small in his own eyes and clearly had issues with pride. Further, Saul was superstitious. His faith consisted on reliance upon signs and supernatural guidance, and he lacked any real trust in God. The story, however, makes it clear that Saul's main problem was his unrepentant disobedience. The disobedience was rooted in his pride and even in his superstition. The culpable role of his superstition is seen in how it led him to violate clear commands from Yahweh. Instead of waiting to offer the sacrifices as commandment, Saul thought it more important to seek God's pleasure by offering the sacrifice before the battle himself. Then in chapter 15, instead of completely killing the Amalekite animals as God commanded, superstitious Saul thought it would be a better idea to offer them to God as a sacrifice. The role of pride in his fall is seen in chapter 15 when instead of relying upon God and obeying God, Saul built a monument in his own honor. Instead of pleading for forgiveness, he asked the prophet to honor him before the elders. Due to his disobedience in chapter 13, Saul is told his dynasty will not continue after him. Due to his disobedience in chapter 15, Saul is told that he has been rejected as king altogether and that God has given his kingdom to one of his neighbors who is better than him. Those who find Saul to be a victim of God have suggested that the issue is not why Saul was rejected, as Saul clearly disobeyed, but why there's no forgiveness. After all, David will later commit sinful acts that almost make some of Saul's pale in comparison. Uh, Saul sacrificed early and failed to completely kill the Amalekites, but David commits, we will see, adultery with a faithful soldier's wife and then has the soldier killed to cover it up. Which sin was worse? If David received forgiveness, why not Saul? A close reading of the story, however, reveals the difference between Saul and David is one word, and that word is repentance. Repentance, that is the difference between two very capable, two very impressive, two very kingly men. One was repentant, the other never was. Saul never had a genuine act or moment of contrition, brokenness, and repentance before God. He only cared to clean things up when he made a mistake by blaming others. In chapter 13, when uh, he's confronted about his sin, Saul defends his actions, offering excuse after excuse, and even blaming Samuel for it. 
Chapter 15, when Samuel confronts him on his sin, saying, Why did you not obey the Lord? Saul denies the charge, saying, But I did obey the Lord. Saul defends his actions as correct. Saul's lack of repentance here is made clear as it is at the end of chapter 15. We are told that Samuel is grieved, that God himself in an anthropomorphic way feels regret, but Saul expresses no sorrow or any regret over any of the events. He is unrepentant to the very end. On the other hand, when David is caught in sin, he is quick to repent. He does not attempt to shift the blame away from himself like Saul. David's response to Nathan's prophetic indictment about his sin was to admit he had sinned against the Lord. Even before David is confronted with his sin in 2 Samuel, he, he is quick to take full responsibility and to seek the forgiveness of the Lord. Furthermore, not only does Saul fail to repent, he stubbornly digs in his hill and lives in outright rebellion against the prophetic word of God. Why didn't Saul step down as king? Why didn't he realize the handwriting was on the wall? Why didn't he stop and just say, okay, I know you've chosen another. His pride would not allow it. The Lord had torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors better than you. The kingdom was no longer his. He was usurping the position. Though Saul apparently never sought the kingship to begin with, in rebellion to the prophet's word, he held on it desperately from here to his death. Some interpreters try to read against the grain of the text and think uh, Saul displays heroic greatness in his refusal to acquiesce to the fate prophesied by Samuel, taking extraordinary steps to hold on to his kingdom. A lesser man might merely accept his destiny. Saul, however, wrestles against it. That is certainly not the biblical view. Saul's wrestling against God's will is not admirable. It does not show greatness. It shows rebellion. It is the rebellion that is the key to his downfall. To be sure, in response to Saul's rebellion, God does send an evil spirit to torment him. He refuses to answer Saul. But we must remember this is a response to an unrepented heart that is defiant to the prophetic word. Instead of repenting and bowing to the divine will, Saul attempts to thwart God's word. He continually tries to kill Yahweh's anointed David. Saul has always all of Yahweh's priests at Nob slaughtered. It's no wonder that Samuel tells Saul, the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. While we can certainly entertain some compassion and sympathy for Israel's first king, his downfall is clearly due to his defiance of the prophetic word and an unrepentant heart. God's actions against Saul and the support of David must be seen in that light. God is not being capricious or unfair in his actions. Saul is not a victim of God's dark side, while David happens to be lucky and get God's good side. In 1 Corinthians, Paul notes that the Old Testament stories are examples that were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing, be careful lest you fall. 
And so Saul's story serves as a cautionary um, tale for Christians today. Saul's story of his epic fall from the heights of Jabesh to the depths of Gilboa serve as a warning about the dangers of unrepentant sin and the impact our choices do have on our lives. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign, but at the same time, we're absolutely responsible in the way we respond to the sovereign God. And do you see, at the end of the day, David is not a better man than Saul, but David is a repentant man. That's what stands as the marked difference between people who will be with Jesus in heaven forever and those whose destiny will be in the pits of hell forever and ever and ever and ever. The issue is repentance. Repentance. Are you a repenting person? Have you repented of sin today? If I were to ask you this week, is there any sin in your life you're repenting of and you scratch your head and go, well, no, I've had a pretty good week. Beware. Beware. It isn't that David was not as bad a sinner as Saul. David, in many ways, was worse. We'll see that in the book of 2 Samuel. This man is, is no paragon of virtue in every way. But he sees his sin and he runs to God with it and he takes responsibility for it and he owns it and he also suffers the consequences of it. And you're going to see the consequences. Visit this man in the book of 2 Samuel over and over again. The sword never leaves his house. But why is David so held up in the Bible as God's anointed the, 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 the uh, Messiah, as it were, uh, the king portraying the one to come because David's heart was repentant. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. Some of you who are really good with uh, the doctrines of grace are going to say, well, isn't repentance a gift of God? Yes, it is. So is faith a gift of God. But Jesus commands that we repent and believe the gospel. It is a commandment. And if you disobey that commandment, you're in deep weeds. And so Saul stands before us as a monument of someone who had such a promising set of gifts, abilities, and poised to take on the future who in his heart of hearts, when it got down to the bottom line of doing what God commanded or doing whatever in the heck I want to do, Saul was doing whatever the heck I want to do to get the approval of people, to get the honor and glory I so desire as king. I will, I will sell out and away from God's name. What a tragic story. On the other hand, what hope... A person like David offers us. David, a man after God's own heart. But that never means sinless. It never means sin. There's only been one man who was the God man who was sinless. Every other man will disappoint you. Every other man will break your heart. There's only been one who was sinless. The thing that I want you to see about David 
was his repentance. What does repent mean? The word pent, repent in uh, Greek is the word metanoia. Meta means to change. Noe in the Greek means the mind or thinking. It is a change of mind that leads a person to a change of direction and lifestyle. It isn't mouthing words. It isn't crying and weeping and sobbing as how bad a person you are. No, repentance is turning. It is turning. Shuv in the Old Testament Hebrew word is turning, turning to God, turning to God, coming back to God, coming back to God. Think of the prodigal son as, as lousy, as theologically unqualified his repentance was. It was still repentance, and God honored it because of the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that we all struggle with our sin because we don't want to stop it. We don't want to repent of it. We don't want to call it what it is. We'd like to call it by another name or blame it on somebody else or say, well, you made me that way. It's your fault. Or like Adam, say, it's the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit. We're just so quick to do that. How I pray that you'd work deep repentance in every heart here that your spirit would empower and gift us to find our way back home and to live with a passion that your name is on us and we're to live for your glory. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give with hilarity and generosity as people who have tasted the grace of God and seen that it is good. Amen.